1994 was a great year for TV. It was the year that saw the birth of Friends, ER, Party of Five and the underrated but now cult teen drama My So-Called Life. Following the trials and tribulations of Angela Chase, played by Claire Danes, it was the show that saw Jared Leto melt millions of girls' hearts as Jordan Catalano. It was a show I was obsessed with watching, so I'm so pleased to have joining me today via Zoom, Angela's wild best friend, Rayanne Graff herself, AJ Langer. AJ, hello, how are you? Hello, I'm doing very well. Um, I'm not sure if I should curtsy or bow to you because for people not aware, you are actually the Countess of Devon here in England. Yes, whatever, whatever you need to do. <laughs> we'll talk more later about your current life, but I love that I'm talking to you today from your home, which is Powderham Castle in Exeter. So what's it like living in a castle? Well, it's... Um... I, I wasn't ever anyone that imagined living in a big house and fancy things. I'm like, I like camping and nature and um, California terrain. Um, so when I first saw it, it was like, oh, I didn't really know what to do with that information. It's it's beautiful. I mean, it's a, what I see when I look at it is just this, um, if you have a creative mind, your mind just explodes in like 110 different directions. And if you're conscientious, um, your heart just wants to wrap it all up and, and, and make sure you're taking good care of it because it is so such a special, spectacular, theatrical and, um, I think, healing space. Mm. Um, it's so inspiring. But um, living in it, <laughs> I mean, all these old houses are in different, you know, different levels of upkeep and I mean, this one's 700 years old and uh, it's been around a while. Um, The castle is built in different times because it's so old. You know, it was an original, we don't live in an original medieval tower. It's obviously evolved from there. So um, each family, each generation has come in and kind of done their thing to it. So there's certain extensions in the Victorian period when they had lots of money. And then um, it's, been, it's had a long history of yeah. wars and everything. Um, so in a nutshell, it can be a bit overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you see this beautiful nature outside, but then you're in a fortress. Um, <laughs> like the kitchen that we use, because the, the Victorian kitchen is on a on the tour. So ours is like a converted pantry that's got a little electric stove. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit, um, my friends just think it's the funniest thing, funniest thing in the world. Like, Oh, the glamour. Of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> everything falling apart. My husband won't let us fix the doors because it's always been broken and he, and he finds it sweet. <laughs> So it's funky. Amazing. It's hard for keeping track of people. My kids couldn't stand it because they just kept losing us. And um, (laughs) hide and seek probably takes forever to play. It's really good for hide and seek. It's really good for hide and seek. Amazing. So let's start our journey into the nostalgia zone. Before we talk about My So-Called Life, I wanted to start off by briefly talking about the first film I saw you in, which was Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs. Wow. What was it like working with Wes? Wes was, 
he was oddly wonderful. He was, it was one of um, my first films. And I got to say the first day is probably a scene you remember, um, which my, my kids saw at one point and they were just totally traumatized. <laughs> the first scene when I walked on set was the one when Wendy throws me in the bathtub of like oh it's boiling water yeah, yeah 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 and that was like hi I'm Wendy hi I'm AJ um <laughs> let me throw you into this bar yeah, yeah. um guttural screams and torture and abuse and um yeah it was pretty gnarly um but then there was Wes and he just whenever I say his name it's like Wes and Wendy does too Wes He's just the sweetest man with the weirdest mind. It's like you would not <laughs> expect this beautiful human who seems very, I mean, he's very zen and um, always very calm. Um, and his direction was always thoughtful. He was always connected. He knew how to, to get you into the space, into a very scary space while feeling mm. extremely safe. Mm. Uh, he was uh, a brilliant mind. And, um, and a wonderful lead when it came to, you know, when you're working with a director. And I was quite young when I did that, that film. Um, yeah, I was going to say, because you were 16, 17. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I imagine it's quite fun making a horror film generally, but what's it like making a film that you're pretty much too young to see in the cinema by yourself? <laughs> well, there were other kids in it um, and the, the adults that were there. And again, Wes is such a cool guy that he created a pretty cool, uh, nice environment. Um, it was messy. It was, you know, <laughs> falling in the blood. And, and, and I think I kind of had a block on how dark it was. Mm. Um, and I kept to, you know, just this character and who she was and um, what she understood. Mm. Um, which I think probably helped me from being too traumatized. So you literally um, saw, spoke, or heard no evil while you were making. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, we had lots of fun, though. I mean, it was so messy, and you were just up in there, and and there was so much action going on, and I was so fascinated by the special effects guys and girls, and and just all of the mechanics that went on in the back of a set. I'd worked on on different sets before. Mm. Uh, before the film, but really living in it and seeing the commitment and the talent in each department. I think this was the first movie where I really started focusing and, and spending time with each department to see um, to see how they made their pit work. Mm. And when you start to get into that and you realize how many brilliant people are present at any moment in time on a set and how everything on action, there's so many people that are doing, you know, their craft at the highest level all at once. Um, and I just really got high off of that, off of, off of this incredible team and, and wanting to know more about each department and, and what they did and all the tricks. And yeah, yeah it was really fun. Uh, let's move on to My So-Called Life now. Yeah. So this show was so influential for a generation of teenagers. And I felt like it was the first show that was so realistic. It was like my life um, as a teenager. I was 14 at the time it came out and I was devastated that it was cancelled after just one season. But were you aware at the time of how influential this program was or how it, what it could be? Do you know, I was aware of something super special about it when I first went in and auditioned for Angela. 
and the script was on the table and I took it and I was looking through it and I kind of read Angela's stuff, but Rayanne just was like, what is this? I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, whoever gets this is going to have so much fun. And I didn't think I was like Rayanne because I was quite conservative. So, I, But I loved it so much. I asked if I could keep the script and I took it and I, I actually started working on scenes in an acting class. And uh, and this was like months before I actually auditioned for Rayanne. But there was something special about it. And then I remember again, the first day we showed up at Tennessee Avenue um, for the script reading. And I walked in and I said to the woman and I said, don't you get a feeling that like five years from now, we're going to know we were a part of something really, really special? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I'd never read anything like it before because there wasn't anything like it before. I think this is the first time. I mean, Winnie Holtzman wrote this from the um, from the fourteen year olds' world, a fourteen year old girl. I mean, and this is before. I mean, we've come so far. There's women's stories now are much more prevalent, and and young voices. And but there's something about it that's completely timeless. It's completely genius. It's completely perfectly imperfect. Um, the fact that one thing I noticed right away is that people weren't perfectly eloquent Mm. because people aren't perfectly eloquent. You know, people don't know the, and that was the difference between like the Dawson's Creek, which I respect, which was its own, its own thing. But with my so-called life, the eloquence wasn't always there, you know, Mm. and it was, you felt it, it was visceral, the experience as opposed to it just being told to you. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And yet somehow, things that Angela would say I mean the, the writing was just so good and re-watching it now it, it's still so really it still holds up really well apart from maybe fashion but um <laughs> but I remember there was um just things that Angela would say would be almost profound I remember there was this one line when she quit working yearbook first episode and she was asked why and she said this line that said oh. um it's like everybody in, is in this big hurry to make this book to supposedly remember what happened, but it's not even what really happened. It's what everybody thinks was supposed to happen. Because if you made a book of what really happened, it'd be a really upsetting book. I was holding myself back from saying that line with you. Um, <laughs> go on. It was just that that it just felt like the teenagers on the show were, were treated like grown-ups. And the things that Angela would say was just so... I felt like it was real yes. compared to like the Beverly Hills 902. I know that had come yes. before. It yes. was just a very realistic character for me. Exactly. Um, and, it, and it did tell the, it told, it told truths and there's something. So, so I have to say that during, um, during lockdown, we actually got it out and, and, and watched it as a family. And this is the first time I've mm. watched the whole show in like 20 years. Because your daughter's 13 now, isn't she? Exactly. And I'd shown her the pilot when she was like 11 because I was like, well, Lisa was 11 and my daughter's very, you know, mature for her age. She's very Angela. Um, (laughs) Very Angela. And uh, the hair and everything. Um, But she, she was so traumatized by the scene in the pilot at the, at Let's Bolt when the guy's came on to Rayanne and oh, yeah. got scary for a second. Yeah. So, so I left it a couple of years and now she was ready and we watched it as a family and I was so blown away and we've been in touch with, um, we actually had a reunion, a call with my so-called life. Like, I saw, yeah, a couple of months ago. Yeah, it was amazing. And it was right when we were watching it. So it was, it was incredible. And I've been in touch with Winnie, but um, 
first of all, watching it as as a 46-year-old mom of a teenager, which I'd never seen it that way. I'd always watched it as a teenager, you know? Mm. And so now I'm watching it as a grown-up and my God, it was so powerful. And there were things that I've been wanting to talk to my daughter about and hadn't mm. been able to quite get there. And here we just sat and watched the show together and went through, you know, the journey with Angela. And by the end, it was like we'd had the conversation. Mm. And all of a sudden I understood why so many parents came up to me and and were like, oh my God, that show just totally shifted my relationship with my my kids mm. um, and watching it together was so, um, you know, just life enhancing. And, uh, and I would get this from, from different, I mean, I still get letters from people and they're always very earnest and, and touching. Um, yeah. If it, if it affected you, it affected you. I suppose now you're watching it from the perspective of Angela's mum. <laughs> oh my God, it's crazy. That was crazy. It's so uncomfortable. And then, yeah, the grown-ups having lives. And, and I mean, it was, it's one voice of one family. You know, it's mm. not going to be like, oh, well, that's not like, she's not like my mom. It doesn't matter. It's the human being. So you'll mm. end up knowing people that are like those people. Like I had a Rayanne in my life and I had, you know, Ricky in my life. And, uh, I mean, I just got one recently from a girl who is who had um, kind of closed off to her Rayanne friend, mm. and after watching the show again, she reached out to her, and they've become really good friends. And uh, just little things like that, it connects. It yeah. connects. It still connects to this day. I mean, obviously, your your character Rayanne, she had a fair share of troubles. <laughs> she 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 had a problem with with drugs and alcohol, but. I guess also it was her relationship with Angela that was so well done because they were so opposite in in character. But I think every teenage girl has probably had a phase where they've effectively broken up with their best friend oh. for, over something. Although in Brianne's case, obviously she slept with Angela's boyfriend in the back of his car. They were not um, together. <laughs> he was not her boyfriend. <laughs> they were on a break. <laughs> I thought my daughter was going to disown me and she's like, no, I totally get it. She was like... They both are like wanting to be with Angela and they can't. And then they, and I was like, oh, she's so got it. But, um, but yeah, like the messed up kind of things that happen and the webs that, that go out with, with friendships and teenage them and it crosses over and it pulls and it's difficult. And um, so Rayanne kind of happened. I was, again, I said, I was really con- conservative and and then all of a sudden this character came up and mm. um I'd never done any drugs or anything and I had to research you know like how how they affect you and everything mm. and um and there was so much that went into her um but it was something that again came up and I I didn't control that character it was before I I was really into crafting characters in a really healthy way so so all my vulnerabilities were like sliced open and uh yeah it was it was a very vulnerable experience um mm. being her it was scary um because she's like that what are your memories of working on the show I mean imagine having such a young cast it must be quite fun to <laughs> to be together oh. every day but I mean was it like a, a, a hard working schedule wise yeah I mean one hour dramas are I mean it's 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 its own medium. It's like a, a film, but it's in a very short period of time. So you've mm. got to be very prepared. You have to have your, you've got to have your lines down. 
um, you've got to understand the scene because you're not going to get much rehearsal time. Mm. Um, and you've got to, I mean, you don't have to have a cast that you um, can rely on, but we, uh, we did. I mean, the, the quality level on that show was so high. And when I talked about like on people under the stairs about that whole team, you mm. know, of, of, you know, 300 plus people all working in their wheelhouse at the top of their craft. Um, my so-called life was very much like that. And the actors as well. Um, I mean, some were newer than others, but you know, the standard was, was very high. Mm. Um, we had different directors every week and some of which had never directed film, uh, you know, television show um, in their lives. Um, and it was one of the things that Marshall and Ed really liked is having people that it, it, we didn't want, they didn't want the show looking like any other show on mm. TV. And if you see it, there's like each episode kind of has its own feel a mm. lot of the time. So like I, like I started doing on, on, uh, on the films or any job that I would do, I kind of spend time with different departments and spent time with the editors. And the thing about my so-called life is we had our own space. We were in this place, we were in our own um, warehouse and we did like everything there. Um, we had sets everywhere. There was a loft. That's where we did um, the music with, uh, with Jordan Catalano's band. Um, oh, the frozen and, embryos. Uh, frozen embryos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tino set up the loft. He did a great job. I, we have Fabulous. to talk about Tino because <laughs> the famous Tino who was mentioned in every episode but never seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tino rocked. Was that, was that intentional? That was just a running joke? Yeah, no, it was, he, was, he was always there. And the funny thing is that I, I ended up working in Vancouver and met this guy and he was... It, it, in a band who was a guitar player and we kind of dated for a while and his best friend was Tino who was the <laughs> bass player and Tino was always late or he just wouldn't show and it just made me laugh because I actually actually met Tino um, <laughs> brag about it and we we also have to talk about Jared Leto as Jordan Catalano of course and I don't think anyone that has eyes didn't fall in love with him when they saw him was there an equal amount of swooning on set? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, when you're when you're in Hollywood, you meet a lot of beautiful people, and then every once in a while, there's some that are just like oddly beautiful. Like you can't take your eyes off them; it's just distracting. And he had just done like this Neutrogena commercial, <laughs> and and like everyone's like, oh. like that's the guy. That's the guy. Oh my gosh, he's just <laughs> just beautiful. Um, and uh, but then when you're working, you know, you're it's it's all people, and and you get to know each other. And he was part of the team, and um, I remember he brought he brought Gerber daisies, which were my favorites, um, to everybody for Valentine's Day, including uh, Wilson. And and he he wasn't even working that day; he just showed up and gave everybody flowers. Oh. I thought that was very sweet. Um, <laughs> But he was also always slightly elusive. He was very Jordan Catalano. I mean, Winnie's brilliance is that she wrote these characters, but they were living and breathing. Mm. It was like she wasn't set on anything. And so she would like just take everything in, everything in from each of us. And, and it would come through in the script in these ways. And that's one of the things that I, that I know made it so authentic mm. um, was that she was really just in, she's an empath and she just picked up on things and worked it in. Um, so 
that was amazing. Another thing that I remember that was really fun was we kept getting like canceled and like put, I mean, not that that was fun (laughs) (laughs) or put on hold or whatever. And we had such a bond with this, with this crew and we had that crew coming back. And I mean, they had to, we were put on hold for months and months at a time. Mm -hmm. So to get a crew to return with the show, I mean, that's, that shows how special the show is yeah. for, for crew members to be turning down work to make sure that they can return with the show. Yeah. And we would have these parties. And I remember bowling down the the school hallway um, and, uh, and dancing all over the production office. Um, we just had, there was such joy. There was, there was so much awareness that, that what we were doing was really special. I, I really want you to say we had a time. I know you do. <laughs> we had a time. My daughter's like, go now, go. <laughs> Say it, mommy. You mentioned um, you mentioned earlier that you had a, a bit of an online cast reunion a couple of months ago. Um, who who organised that? And uh, what was that like being being back together after 26 years? What do you talk about? Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, Patty organised it. Patty. <laughs> Bess. <laughs> Bess was the was the ringleader of making that happen. Um, and uh, you know, it's in the middle of lockdown, so it's such a disorienting time. And I find I feel like a lot of people were reaching out to old friends and mm. reconnecting. It was a it was an interesting time for that. So when it came up, it just gave me the chills everywhere. And I hadn't talked to people for 20-some years. Um, mm. so to see everybody was really cool. I actually had to get up at two in the morning because I'm in England. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it felt like, of course I will. Um, <laughs> my son wanted to get up with me, but uh, <laughs> he's just so excited. He was so excited. I was like, why are you so excited? He's like, I'm so excited for you. <laughs> so sweet. But I was excited. Um, yeah, it was great. Um, you know, we'd, we'd had lots of catch ups, you know, I mean, Wilson and I had had touched base over the years and mm. um, like a couple other people, but really it was like, so the last 20 years, go. <laughs> it was crazy, but there is a connection to people who've known you forever, you yeah. know, even if you don't see them for a long time. But just seeing Winnie and Paul and, um, oh, yeah, my heart just went, <laughs> oh my God, I love these people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I've, I've done a lot of film and television um, work and I love the diversity in my career. You know, the, it was kind of all over the place, but I love that. And I, and I was kind of a chameleon, so I, I do very different things. So I had a lot of different experiences, which for me, again, that, that fascination with, with how it all worked. Um, was satisfied, but I don't think there was another show. And also what I was saying about it was kind of before I, I had a real healthy craft about it. And so all of my stuff just joined in with Rayanne's. Um, and that, that vulnerability, you know, was different. I mean, not that I wouldn't be vulnerable in roles now, but yeah. that one was just so it was raw and it was teenage and it was, it was that time that it gave me such a lasting, yeah. um, 
Oh my God, everything's shaking. I realize it's my dryer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> washers and dryers in this country? I don't understand. I just don't understand. I'm like, can, can I just bring my washer and dryer from America, please? <laughs> What's the difference? They're so small. <laughs> They're so small. Like you can't, I mean, we have a castle that runs 12 businesses and we had a washing machine that was the size of my grandma's washing machine in Iowa on a farm. <laughs> then there was no dryer. And my husband tried to convince me that he's not going to, he's not going to buy a dryer until I've tried, at least tried using the 1950s spin dryer that was left in the castle. <laughs> How did that work out for you? Um, I put it with all the wet laundry <laughs> next to his side of the bed. And I said, go for it, honey. <laughs> do you think the, um, do you think the series could ever come back where, where Angela and Rayanne are now approaching 40 and have teenage daughters of their own, but they're still struggling with their own lives? You know, and I don't always do this with other shows, but with this one, it totally keeps going in your head. Like, where would they be now? What would be happening? And because of Winnie, um, I know that if it were to come back, it would be, it, it would be a yes from me. Mm. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know. There's something about not wanting to touch it, you know. <laughs> it was so, it's so its own little package. So <laughs> perfect. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of shows coming back and, and its relevance now is, is just, as, um, just as real. Mm. That's what I noticed from watching it. And there are little things that are out of date, but um, the last episode in Dreams, I mean, watching it through, we watch one episode a day, one episode in the evening just recently. And, uh, and we got to that last episode and I just think it's one of the best episodes of television ever. Mm. Um, and Wilson's character. And I mean, back then this was the first time a gay character was, was just so real. Um, mm. And, it was the first gay him, teenager on TV, wasn't it? It was. And that scene where he actually says, I'm gay. And she's like, well, she, she was like, uh, I kind of knew that. And he's like, yeah, well, I've never really said it out loud. Um, that moment and that, and it was incredible too, because because I was on the show, so many of my friends were coming out to me because they knew they were safe. Um, <laughs> But it was, it was, it was monumental. And, and there's just so much that makes me proud about, you know, how much progress has been made. And, and then there's so much that makes me want to double down and, and um, pay attention to teenagers because I think that show left me with a real um, sense of the importance of teenage voices. And mm. uh, it's like all of a sudden, all the filters come off of, you know, your sheltered life as a child. Mm. And, uh, and the filters come off and it's like, whoa, you just get real life, unfiltered, raw, right in your face. You see, mm. you know, parents coming off of pedestals. Um, your body starts changing and it's just completely a new world. And, um, and there's a sense of independence in that and a need for independence in that, which mm. is... Um, really scary it's everything it's like the first time you've just 
start feeling and learning and seeing everything and how you deal with it then kind of contributes to the trajectory of what lessons you're going to be learning for the rest of your life. Well, it's been fun reminiscing. This is like a dream come true talking about this with you, but, um, but now it's time to move out of the nostalgia zone into what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Let's fast forward to 2005 when you married your husband, Charlie, and became Lady Courtney, and then subsequently the Countess of Devon when he became the 19th Earl of Devon. How did you juggle acting with having the responsibility of a title? Because I'm, I'm imagining like a Meghan Markle situation where you, you kind of have to make a choice <laughs> as to what you want to what you want to do. For the first 10 years, we lived in California and I was working as an actor. And, uh, and then... Um, I took a break from acting because we were ready to have kids. And um, I have to say, like, I, I, I went to, a friend gave me a gift of, of went to an astrologer once and um, actually not that long ago because that happens in California. <laughs> and uh, it happens everywhere. Um, but I went and, and it, was, it was really fascinating because he, he said something about me. He's like, you're one of these three extremes. It's like, there's people who are... Um, you know, when it comes to convention, there's, there's very conventional. These are the extremes. So very conventional, obviously not. <laughs> um, and then there's anti-convention. So the rebel. And then the third one is, um, what convention? What are you talking about? What? <laughs> <clears throat> just don't see it. Um, and I'm kind of one of those people who just doesn't really see convention. So bringing me into a really conventional world is a little like, cross-firing for me. Um, so, you know, I never really knew what to do with that information. Just kind of like the castle, it's a big house and I see like the practical and the beautiful and then the romantic, but that's great. Um, but the, the reality of, you know, raising a family together and, um, and doing it in a way that feels authentic to us was really important. So having that time in California, um, was amazing. It was great for Charlie as well, um, who grew up in this architecture, um, to have some time surfing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as an American, I can imagine it must have been a bit of a culture shock to come here and essentially move into yeah. Downton Abbey culture. Well, we yeah, and we we'd 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 come for a visit at one point, and uh, and then never went home. <laughs> so his dad became unwell, and uh, and sadly ended up passing too soon. Um, so we, we did find ourselves in the middle of, okay, this is happening, um, and not feeling as prepared as you would want to be. Mm. Um, but we're, we're pretty adventurous. So we, we jumped in and, uh, I mean, the memorial, it was like the Godfather. Um, it was extraordinary. Um, my husband did uh, one of the most beautiful speeches I've ever heard for his, uh, father's eulogy. And then it was, it was it was like the Godfather. It mm. was eight hundred people coming into the castle and all lined up just to shake his hand and and I had learned a lot over the twelve years that we had been together. But I think I underestimated the 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 step from you know, I mean, I was a completely independent person from the age of fifteen, <laughs> uh, lived alone for many years, traveled alone a lot, and. Uh, and always kind of went to the beat of my own drum. And here I was in the middle of, you know, a really intense 
very, very um, root, deep-rooted patriarchy. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's been really fascinating. I had a friend at the beginning and she was just like, just to keep yourself healthy, kind of get this separate perspective of, of um, like an anthropologic study of the culture. And that helped a lot. Um, so I was able to be fascinated by it. And then when it came to balancing acting, it really wasn't on the table because we were, you know, we're three hours out of London and my kids, you know, needed community and um, connection. And this was so much to take on that you couldn't really do it halfway. Um, mm. And I'm kind of the person that takes whatever's in front of me and, and does my best with it. I didn't, I didn't say when I was young, oh, I want to be an actor and... And that was my only goal. Um, it's uh, it's about life, <laughs> and mm. so when, and then coming out here, and then all I could see was like, wow, you know, could you imagine that that crew of people like on a film set if we had that here, you know, um, with everyone at the top of their game and really, you know, curating um, the right people to help this magical place fulfill its potential. Mm. Um, so it was more about the focus went to, um, our family, really grounding our family because, mm. um, as I say, I might have underestimated the, uh, the realities for myself. I, it was the same for my, for my husband who had, you know, been my hippie feminist husband in California for <laughs> 10 years. Um, and I'm like where'd my hippie feminist husband go Um, (laughs) and all of a sudden these like patriarchal things start coming out of his mouth I'm like who are you Um, where's my Charlie so it's a lot of recalibrating Um, and it was my house in California it was the house that I bought to to heal I'd also dealt with a lot of chronic pain and and um, different diagnoses uh, from when I was a kid. So I always had this priority of health and, mm-hmm. um, and happiness. I found that happiness makes a big difference in your physical body's well-being. So, um, and when you're in pain, you don't really have the option to ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> it just gets louder. <laughs> so for our health and happiness, we came up with our family values, um, which is, you know, community, inclusivity is really important to us. Um, sustainability and not just sustainability of this land and this, the structures and um, everything, but sustainability for, for our family and for everybody who works here, you know, work-life balance. So you moved to Padram Castle in 2014 and um, it's three and a half thousand acres. So I imagine it is a, a pretty big job to be its caretaker. But um, although the castle has been open to visitors for some time, I love that you recently opened um, some of your private residences so people can see it. And, and I love that they could even bring their dog. Yes. Well, the dog was, I mean, that castle had been open since the 1950s. There was a woman called Venetia, Charlie's grandmother, who um, during the war, um, she had to open it. So there's... I mean, the castle, these, these houses cost a lot to maintain. And if you own one, you are, um, you're, you're expected to maintain it and you get fined and you get, you know, there's a lot of regulations, like you've got to keep it together and it Mm. costs about, you know, half a million just to, just to maintain the structure in one year. Um, 
So you've got to make some money. You've got to make it um, abundant. And it takes a lot of creative thought. And we were taking the house. Our main shift generationally was from begrudgingly opening it to the public, Mm. but seeing it mainly as your private home. Um, For us, we came in immediately, you know, knowing that we are custodians and, um, and that sharing it is vital to its sustainability. So, so opening, opening it further and, and really, you know, making sure people feel welcome to have experiences here and that's how people will connect and want to come back. Um, and we have our dogs and, you know, it just made sense because there's dogs in all these old houses. Everybody who has these houses has, has dogs that are really comfortable. And, and just being able to, to have people come with their dogs made a huge difference. <laughs> um, and it was, it was so funny because the only dog that's ever gone to the bathroom in the house was our puppy. And it was during, it was during the training day where we have everybody come in and we're talking about, um, being confident, you know, having the dogs come in and not worrying about it. And Aura just went right up in front of everyone and just squatted down. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when you have a puppy um, kind of like poop on a 600-year-old rug in the corner? <laughs> you know, you clean it up. It's happened before. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and, and you've um, And you've hosted... Concerts, music festivals. I know that like Little Mix, Tom Jones, Coldplay have all played at the castle. Um, and you've had school play productions, yoga classes. You can even get married at your castle. Um, so has that just been yeah. really important for you? You can to- even get engaged. <laughs> we love doing engagements too. How important is it for you to to really share your home with everyone in the local community? Um, well, I think it's important. It's just as it needs to be. I mean, these houses don't make, I mean, for me, they don't make it, it doesn't make any sense. The the titles, the everything doesn't make any sense if it's not serving humanity in some way, especially when um, you look around and it's so beautiful. So, I mean, we're doing things. Yeah. I mean, like I have to do yoga. I have to exercise every day. Um, and I like doing it with company. So we just kind of started opening that up of finding people to do yoga here and then just inviting people in. And, um, and it just kind of grew from there, you know, coming from California, it is a little bit of like back to the future when you come out into the countryside. (laughs) Um, And there's a, there's a culture here of, you know, self-care being very self-indulgent or like almost like a, a negative thing. Navel gazing is a, is a yeah. thing until you have health issues and you need to find support in Western medicine isn't giving you that. So, um, and you've got the national healthcare system, but I won't get up on my, on my platform. <laughs> um, but uh, taking care of yourself is really important. And this place is so ripe for it. I mean, we have education programs. Um, you know, we're, we're doing a sensory um, garden experience, really focusing on accessibility and dementia. And, and uh, we work with a lot of the local charities that do um, work and care homes and things like that mm. to get people out. And anti-isolation is a big thing in the countryside. But I think it came from our values of, of family, of home and family and community are the top three um, for us yeah. to be healthy here. And we started that and then it just kind of grew and it turns out that, you know, Powderham really thrives on, on community. Um, during lockdown, when we weren't able to have anybody here, it just felt 
really weird because yeah. um, people are closed in boxes and uh, and it's like, please come and breathe. Um, <laughs> and in the countryside, it's, and also in England, it's much smaller than like America. It's massive. Yeah. yeah. Um, but green spaces are very valuable. And so taking care of ours and making sure that we share it in a way that is that is fun and creative and healthy. We have forest school here, but I'd love for it to develop more. And um, yeah, outdoor learning and just getting out and walking and enjoying these gardens, mm-hmm. but bringing in the creativity to, to enhance the experience of, you know, learning what these trees are about and, and why history is relevant now. There was a, there was a, a past history of kind of, not kind of blatantly um, <laughs> covering up our gay ancestors here, and we've had the gift of being able to take that top off mm. and take off the label of flamboyant. So, like for for women, it's formidable. Any woman that's like <laughs> says anything in history, um, so we can we can bring up women's studies and gender studies yeah. and. Um, and that's been wonderful because we have some gay relatives um, at Powderham that were amazing characters and really interesting stories. So we've been able to open that up and uh, be a really welcoming space for, for same-sex marriages. You know, Devon, the countryside is actually very gay, um, but they had a very high level of uh, suicide and, and mental health issues. So being supportive of our gay community is very natural for us. So that's something mm. that we've, we've brought here. You spoke, um, you spoke in parliament last summer yes. at a round table for heritage health and wellbeing. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're a big advocate for, um, the mental and physical health benefits that the arts can bring. Does it feel like a big responsibility being in this influential position that you have to help drive positive change at a at a high government level? Yeah, I think that, you know, it is as much as I, I don't really know what to do with like the, the whole title thing, um, then I switch into, well, for whatever, if I agree with the reasons or not, people would listen if I had something to say. And so using it for again, to serve humanity in some way feels right. And I'm also very passionate about it. So it's very authentic for me. We had the big weekend here, which was 50,000 people and 38 of the biggest acts. The, the Radio 1. Yes, big Radio weekend. 1 big weekend. And the guy who ran that was, we just really connected. And I'd gone to Apple where he was working, where he's working now. And, um, and did training with their creatives on, you know, connection and facilitating community. And, um, and it was amazing because it was it was a whole program shifting their focus from product placement to facilitating community and being anti-isolation. And I found that so mm-hmm. satisfying because it's what we're trying to do, you know, here with our small business. Um, our, our We call it our 800-year-old startup. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is, is bringing health and well-being to the center and to the table. Um, and, uh, and I feel that that's going to bring a, a balance because patriarchy is, it has its place next to the matriarchy <laughs> and they both have to be present. And that's becoming more real in society. As you see these old, these old structures kind of, kind of breaking down, um, and, and yeah. women's voices standing up. And, and I know one um, of the reasons you're so passionate about the arts is not obviously not just because you're an actress, but because um, you do have a, a chronic pain condition, which you 
mentioned earlier, you have um, fibromyalgia and staying connected to the arts has helped you kind of deal with that and get through it. I was wondering how does having um, an invisible illness in inverted commas uh, that people don't really understand affect your life? Well, because I had it from a very young age, um, I think when I was younger, it was much more confusing because it was, I, I just couldn't keep up with people. I couldn't process things. I would get really sick. I was a, I played boys baseball in an all boys baseball league. I had a big brother. I was a real athlete. So the pain was really confusing. And then, you know, growing up, not being able to go out drinking because I was just way too sensitive. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it was very challenging. And I had to do a lot of work on, um, on how to address it because it wasn't like when people get these things when they're older and they say, oh, it's just old age and they can, they kind of give up, which now I'm like, no, no, you can't give up. That's not the option. Um, but also I didn't have that option. So it was like, I had to figure this out. And I found through lots of different ways that, um, or lots of different mediums. I mean, I've done every therapy, every exercise I've traveled the world, um, studying different modalities. And what it comes down to for me is connecting to your passion and staying connected and really being fierce about it um, and learning what your, what your um, patterns are. There's all different ways to say it. I'm not sure which one to go for right now, but the, um, a big one for me was victim consciousness, mm. which I was really defensive of when I was in a lot of pain because it's like, well, you know, I didn't cause this, but it's, you can be a victim without any victim consciousness. So you can be dealing with incredible pain and discomfort and, um, all kinds of, uh, limitations. And, and I'm sure you've meet the, you meet those people and they're all inspiring, you know, the ones that have these limitations and yet it doesn't limit them. Yeah. And so that's what I was going for. And that's what I believe in. And, and fibromyalgia is, is the diagnosis. Who knows? They're learning so much more about things now. Um, but I was diagnosed with lots of different things over the years, like loads of different things and had surgeries for all these different things. But the one thing that's, that's been the most effective is connecting with myself and taking responsibility for um, my happiness and, yeah. and finding ways to say no and... Uh, and keep healthy boundaries, and really be fierce about um, about this being, you know, you get one life. This is it. Yeah. Let's do it, and making sure that you you can have fun, learning how to let go of things that you don't have control over. Um, and it's a constant practice, but um, the payoff is is huge. Um, and I see it with my kids. The more um, good work I do with taking care of myself and, and not letting pain, um, eat my life. Um, the more I learned that, yeah, this is actually a lesson that everybody can learn. And, and as if you haven't got enough on your plate already, yeah. <laughs> um, you're, you're about to launch another project, which is Powder and Lies. Tell me a bit about that. So Powder Room Live has actually been going for five years now. Um, we started it because I got here and um, and it was beautiful going to all the classical music and the music room in the castle. And it's this beautiful uh, Regency music room. 
um, that was built by John Wyatt, who was the the coolest designer of his time, architect of his time. And it's this magnificent room that's just made for music. The acoustics are incredible. Mm. And I loved hearing the um, classical music. And we have some incredible classical music programs running through there. But I went to a friend's house and um, I'm used to a bit more diversity. <laughs> and uh, and his son was playing at the piano and just crazy jazz piano. And then a classical pianist, and these are all teenagers, came in and they started doing a mashup. And then another kid came in and started doing a mashup of like the theme song from a video game. And I, I was just like, oh, and it was so fun and electric <laughs> and um, brilliant and beautiful. So I was like, this is what we need. We need some of this energy in this castle. And um, and my friend just turned and said, well, I might be able to help you do that. So Powder and Live was born and uh, it's teenage musicians storming the castle and it's age 13 to 19. And in England... What I was another thing I wasn't used to was that you know when when you do music it's all it's graded and you have yeah. certain things and it's very specific what you what you can focus on and here they could just come and play whatever they love. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah, it's great. We've had over a hundred kids through the program and we do they we do an audition but it's like a gig in the chapel in the castle. We've got grunge rock in the chapel <laughs> um, to show tunes. To um, I mean, we had a, a Japanese jazz piece last year that just brought the house down. I mean, the range is extraordinary. And so they, they do the audition. They get positive feedback from other professionals and uh, myself. And then they go into a program where we offer kind of mentoring. And I do voice and movement and connection. Um, my partner, Robin, who runs the cave in Tinmouth is a, a social worker who, who, who runs a rehearsal space. And he's got people from age, you know, seven to, to 102, I think, um, <laughs> and, uh, and hold space. And he, he just is, is a very generous, um, talented musician and helps with, you know, we do confidence building and performance Mm. And um, and so we wanted to add more people because because I'm not necessarily what what all what all of them need. So the chicks <laughs> want like bass lessons, and I want to be able to offer more vocal, vocal specifically vocal singing lessons. And it's all about you know preparing your instrument and yourself for um, longevity and uh, and really being brave to. Um, to use your voice and express express everything you're 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 dealing with through your through your music, so we really champion a lot of original writing, um, songwriting workshops and things like that. And then the final performance is in the music room, which is small in that it can't be like. I mean, it's not small, but it's, you know, we can do <laughs> like, a castle. <laughs> but for a concert, it's like 130 people. You're not going to make any money from that or anything. It's, it's just about using this castle and, and uh, it being a platform. And we, we give each of the kids a really high quality kind of video of their performance. And, um, and now we're building a social media platform plan so that we can continue to connect, support, empower and promote 
um, all of the, the kids who come through the program. And now it's developing into, if you've performed for three years, then you become an alumni. Mm. So we want to keep coming up with ways to, to support our alumni. And I think one of the main things that come out of it is the importance of community for the in-betweens for artists. Mm. Um, Cause I've been in so many different mediums and seen artists fall off the rails. Like, I mean, I know myself, if I do a show, if I do a play, if I do a TV show, um, they be- you, you become such an in- intense family. You go through so much, the hours that you work and everything. It, it's really an incredible experience. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it's over. And it's kind of like falling off a cliff. And that's when I'd see so many people fall off the rails. Um, and I've worked with uh, at-risk youth in, in London with a charity that were young performers and uh and they brought me in because as soon as the the run was done the kids would just kind of fall off so Mm. so it's about building a creative and inspiring um and collaborative community that's always there yeah like home you know that you can come back to when you need to you know relaunch yourself or start something new you've got this this crew of people that are in your corner and uh um yeah it's become something really special (laughs) well aj i could talk to you all day um but i appreciate you've got a castle to run (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but thank you so much for speaking with me today i really appreciate your time (laughs) my pleasure i do have a kid to take camping <laughs> that's, that's my next priority. Alrighty. Well, it was lovely to talk to you, Genevieve. You too. A huge thanks to AJ for joining me this episode. As a massive fan of my so-called life, it was a real treat to be able to talk with her about it. And if you fancy a trip to Devon, why not take a tour of AJ's home at Powderham Castle? Visit powderham.co.uk for more details. If you're in the US, you can watch My So-Called Life on Amazon Prime Video. Lucky things. (laughs) Sorry if you're in the UK, you can't. Uh, But there's a link in the show notes to grab a coveted copy on DVD. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. If you did, please share it with someone else who you think may also enjoy it. And why not leave a rating or review? As usual, you can find me on Instagram at Celebrity Catch-Up Podcast or on Twitter at Celeb Catch-Up Pod if you'd like to say hello or suggest future guests. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by buying me a coffee. Find out more in the show notes. Until next time, thanks for listening. Listening.